The following presentation from the Utah Open Source Conference, held August 28th through 30th, 2008, is underwritten by Guru Labs Training. Guru Labs Training is the trusted source for Linux systems administration, network, and security training. GuruLabs.com Streaming and podcast hosting bandwidth for this and many other presentations at podcast.utos.org has been provided by Tier 4. The presentation was given by Edwin Phillips on open source for the Windows Addict. Hi, my name's Ed, and uh, I'm a Windows Addict. Um, Last time I used Windows was, well, I'm, I'm using it right now, actually. But, but I really have a good reason for using Windows. You know, I, I do have a valid reason for it. I, it came installed on the computer. I mean, what more do you need than that? I mean, well, I mean, you know, all my friends use Windows. And you know, my work, that's what they give you is Windows. You're expected to use it. I mean, yeah, I've, I've heard of this Linux thing people talk about, but holy cow. Sed, grep, awk, command line, what's all that about? And, you know, you try to get on these forums or whatever they call them and try to talk to people, and, man, they make you feel so stupid. Jeez. I, I tried to put it on this laptop even, you know, and I even talked to Dell. It's a Dell laptop, and, you know, they called me stupid, idiot. You should have bought the other laptop. This one doesn't work with it. You know? So you know, I've got really good reasons for it. And besides, you know, Windows is Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates is a man that I know is, is looking out for my best interests. He cares for me. He loves me. And to me, that sound familiar to anybody here? Anybody ever heard any of that? Does it describe any of you? Friends that you know? <laughs> My name is Ed, and it's probably safe to say I am a Windows addict. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm qualified to, uh, to uh, bring this presentation. Um, this is the first time I've ever done a presentation before. Uh, so if I should happen to pass out a running screening Ming out of the room, don't worry. It's just to be expected. Um, so, the Windows Addict. Uh, what we're going to talk about a little bit is, is uh, what a Windows Addict is and their relationship to open source and open source's relationship to uh, the Windows Addict. Uh, why would a Windows Addict benefit from open source and why would open source benefit from having Windows Addicts involved in its uh, conception? Uh, then we'll talk about some programs that are very Windows Addict friendly, uh, great ways to introduce people to open source software, uh, or just to use if you yourself are a Windows Addict. Um, to start with, why Windows? What is it about Windows that appeals to the Windows Addict? Uh, first of all, we talked about there's that obvious convenience, familiarity. Uh, you go to Best Buy to buy a computer, it's going to come with Windows. Uh, 
you go buy a piece of hardware, it's going to be Windows compatible. The driver CD included with the hardware is going to be Windows drivers. Uh, you go to a school, you go to uh, office, most likely they're going to have you using Windows. Your parents probably use Windows. It's everywhere. Your, your house has Windows. Just Windows, Windows, Windows. Uh, might be required for your job. I, I uh, come from a company that uh, uh, is, uh, I would say, fairly Windows friendly. Uh, they uh, do so much business with Windows that Microsoft actually has a Microsoft employee on site at our corporate headquarters. Um, so, yeah, they, they like Windows. Uh, there might be specific applications that keep you tied to Windows. Games is obviously a big one, so I, I put it up there in parentheses. You know, people like their Windows games. Uh, financial applications. There's a lot of people that love Quicken, love Microsoft Money, uh, want to use those. Uh, Microsoft Office. Obviously, Microsoft Office runs on Microsoft Windows. Because we talked about, if you go buy a computer, most of the time, most of the vendors are going to provide it. Can barely hear me? Okay. Does that help at all? No. The main piece. Let me put this back on here. It looks like maybe once upon a time it was a Phillips head. Does that help at all? Okay, I'll, I'll try to project a little bit. I'm a pretty soft-spoken person too, so I apologize for that. I'll do the best I can. Uh, the other reason, of course, is fear of open source software. Uh, penguins can be pretty imposing creatures. Um, and most people, when they think of open source, they immediately think of Linux. Uh, Linux, to them, seems a little scary because it always seems like there's something involving configuring a kernel or, or compiling or uh, solving package dependencies. These are, these are words that they hear and think about and, and are worried about. Uh, there's fear that they're going to get made fun of. There's certainly the, the open source community has some very opinionated people. And sometimes if you go into these chat rooms looking for information about something, there's some pretty good fights going on sometimes. So that can be kind of intimidating to a, to a first time person. And right along with that goes choice. Uh, how many uh, Linux distributions are out there right now? More than 100? More than 200? There, there's quite a few. There you go. And that can be pretty intimidating to somebody that's used to being given Microsoft Windows and Microsoft Office, and those are your only choices. And it, it can be a lot to wade through in trying to decide which one is the best fit for you. So those are a lot of the reasons why there could be fear of open source. Um, so what benefits does open source software bring to the Windows addict? Uh, first of all, there's lower cost. You know, most open source applications are free or very close to. Um, just taking a minute here, though, to point out that while open source software is generally free to download, 
uh, I would encourage you and encourage you to encourage others to donate when the opportunity comes uh, for software that you find useful and use regularly. Obviously, open source developers, like anybody else in the world, need to eat. And since they're giving you their product for free, it would be really great if you could give something back. And a lot of times, that's a great thing that you can give them is money so they can buy food and clothes and you know, all that good stuff, new computers. Um, I want to focus a little bit on the zero benefit cost, though. And there, there's two of them specifically that I want to talk about. Uh, one is anti-piracy systems, and the other is bundling. Now, anti-piracy systems, what I mean by that? Uh, when you buy software and you have to uh, put in a, a, a license key uh, or go and activate the product or online, uh, or some of the more aggressive ones require you to put a USB dongle in your computer before the software will work. Well, somebody had to write and develop all this cool software, and there's a lot of cryptography behind it a lot of times. There was a lot of expense that went into developing those anti-piracy mechanisms. Now, those don't give anything to you. In fact, they get in your way a lot of times. But you had to pay for it when you bought that software. Part of the cost of buying the software you wanted to use was to pay for all that R&D and effort and hassle. Uh, bundling. Um, a lot of times you go out and buy a software package and there are other things included that you don't want. Uh, a real blatant example might be, say, in the case of Windows XP, you want an operating system for your computer. You have no interest in a web server or an FTP server. Those are included for free. Well, no, because somebody had to develop those components that are on there. And so those are included in the price of the software. So you're paying for something that you didn't necessarily want. So these are what I call zero-benefit costs. There are things that you're paying for that are giving you nothing back. Okay, so that's one benefit. Uh, the other is open standards. You know, your average uh, Windows addict is not a developer, generally. Uh, they're not really interested in the source code, so open source isn't that important to them. But open standards are. It provides them a way to ensure that their data is protected uh, in the long term. If the standard is well documented, uh, they can always get back to it to recover their data if they wind up with an old version that, say, is no longer supported. Uh, in a proprietary world, they're pretty much out of luck. Uh, with open standards, that's not something that they have to worry about. Uh, the other, of course, is improving collaboration. Now it doesn't matter if the person that you're working with is using a Linux system uh, or a Macintosh system uh, or an Amiga OS. It doesn't matter. The standards are open and compatible regardless. Uh, the other is security. Um, now, security always gets to be a little bit of a touch point because there's all those debates about which one really is more secure, uh, open source, proprietary. Uh, I'm, I'm not really going to focus on uh, the, the more debatable aspects of that. I just want to focus on a couple of aspects uh, where there is real security in open source software. Uh, one, just talking about legitimized spyware. Who's heard of uh, Gator, Weatherbug, Bonzi Buddy, any of these? Uh, these are legitimate programs that you can download from legitimate websites that you can legitimately install on your computer that do some other things in the background that you may or may not know what they're doing. Uh, a lot of times it's pushing advertisements down to you. Sometimes it may be collecting information about you to send back so they can help build better targeted advertisements for their audience. Now, that may be innocuous enough. Uh, the problem is you don't necessarily know what they're doing. Uh, what if they're sending out information in an encrypted packet? How do you know it's in there? 
You're just going to have to trust them at their word. Uh, with open source, that's not a problem. The code's open. Somebody, maybe you don't understand the code, but somebody is probably looking at that code and is going to raise their hand and scream if they find somebody doing something illegitimate. So you buy a lot of safety from the community there. Uh, the other, coming back to those anti-piracy mechanisms, uh, something that I call the anti-piracy denial of service. Uh, who uh, heard of the WGA failure? Sound familiar to anybody? Around August of last year, uh, Microsoft had a little issue, human error, something got injected into their activation servers, uh, 12,000 some odd customers couldn't use their Vista computers because the activation servers told those people that their legitimate bought and paid for computers were not legitimate and put them into uh, their uh, restricted mode and they spent the weekend without their computers. Now, you know, one time mistake, certainly something like that wouldn't happen again, certainly not less than a year later. Uh, recently, VMware made the news for a similar thing. Uh, VMware, uh, of course, virtualization products, they have a, an enterprise-level product that allows you to run lots of virtual machines on a single physical server. Uh, they put out a, a source pack for their enterprise product uh, about a month ago. Uh, again, human error. Somebody screwed up on the uh, anti-piracy mechanism, and uh, it uh, expired everybody's licenses. So uh, you were fine so long as you didn't have to uh, reboot any of your virtual machines. If you had to restart your virtual machine, it wouldn't start back up. That's uh, pretty inconvenient. Uh, I'm sure that it cost companies some uh, uh, dollars in downtime. There's uh, no benefit to anti-piracy mechanisms in open source software since the code is wide open. So that's not something that you have to worry about with open source software. Again, it comes down to visibility. Uh, the code is exposed, is accessible. Maybe you don't understand it, maybe you're not a developer, but you have a whole community of people out there that do understand it, and they're all looking at it. And it's pretty hard to uh, build a conspiracy uh, of the public. The, uh, the other benefit, of course, is uh, freedom, and specifically talking about uh, cross-platform or, plat or uh, portability freedom. Uh, the ability to use your applications where you want, when you want, how you want. Uh, the dirty little secret is the vast majority of users don't care at all about the operating system. They don't use a computer for Windows. Uh, they use it to browse the web. They use it to check their email. They use it to write documents, to watch movies, to listen to music. It doesn't matter what the operating system is to them. So. Now we've talked about these benefits that the addict can gain from open source. Now why do we want these poor, pathetic addicts involved in open source? What are they bringing back to the table? Uh, first of all, they bring a different point of view. Uh, it's some different ideas and ideals. Uh, they typically are the non-dead people. So they can bring these ideas uh, about uh, the end user experience and usability uh, or software that's not related to development at all. Uh, they uh, also can do non-dev work. How many developers do we have in the room? How many of you, your favorite thing is writing the documentation for your code? Okay. 
there are some people out there that are really, really good at documentation. Why not get them involved? Uh, they can also do a lot of usability stuff. You know, one, one of the one of the uh, downsides uh, of having a developer do his own usability is he builds it. Well, he knows how it works and he knows what it's supposed to do, and so it's really easy and comfortable for him to deal with the little niggling issues that it might have. Uh, these people that are non-developers, uh, people that maybe are doctors, can bring a lot of improvement to the usability of medical software if they're involved. And that, of course, cross-discipline projects, the ability to uh, pursue projects uh, that cross disciplines of biology, science, uh, math, uh, medical, uh, whatever it might be. And of course, dollars. Uh, addicts have money. And open source developers need to eat. So again, okay, so let's talk a little bit about applications. Uh, for the Windows Addict. What are the requirements of an application to be a good candidate for a Windows Addict? Uh, first of all, it needs to be really a point-and-click, uh, wizardy kind of install and operation, both. Uh, if they have to edit a config file, if they have to enter special arguments at the command line in order to run the program, not a good choice. Uh, it also needs to have what I call manual free operation. Uh, we want to focus on products so that they don't have to read a document in order to get it running. They should be able to just launch it and basically figure out how it works. Stable, duh. Uh, an effective GUI. Uh, what do I mean by that? It needs to provide easy access to the kinds of tasks that they rarely do. Now, there's a lot of things that uh, you might do once a month, once every six months on your computer. You have to dig out a book and read through to figure out how to how you did that six months ago. It should be something that's fairly easy to figure out and intuitive just by looking at the interface. Uh, it should, as much as possible, leverage existing knowledge. Who's heard of the term embrace and extend? And we, we usually uh, term uh, this as a Microsoft strategy. Uh, when somebody comes up with something cool on the market, uh, Microsoft embraces it, pulls it into their stuff, and then adds stuff onto it that nobody else can do, extending it so that you can only use it on Windows. The same idea can really be applied to open source software. Uh, we can embrace the good things that have occurred in Windows and then add on to that so that what we have is even better. Uh, systems that take advantage of visual leveraging. Uh, what I mean by that is it needs to have an interface that is clear and well organized. Uh, these are some examples of stuff you don't want to see. Uh, lots of clutter, colors that don't make sense, that don't pull you to anything, uh, lists that aren't even in alphabetical order. You want to see interfaces that are more like this, where things are clean, they're well organized, they're well laid out. Uh, you may not understand specifically what this product does, but they've used colors and icons so that somebody that has had uh, some basic familiarity with it will quickly identify what's going on, what it's doing, uh, and how it works. And here's another good example. This one actually is an open source application, Eclipse. Now, you as a non-developer, this may not make a lot of sense to you, but to somebody that has a little bit of understanding of development or developing, these icons, the, the layout, the colors, uh, allow you to quickly draw your attention to the categorizations and classifications of what's going on there. So this is the kind of stuff we're looking for. 
Okay, I've created a list here of some of the common applications that people use. Uh, the uh, normal Windows offerings, and then a list of open source equivalents that are pretty good fits for these uh, within the, the, uh, the constraints that I've set. Um, I've got one there that I've, I've kind of left grayed out evolution. You're going to see a couple places where I've grayed things out. Uh, I have to confess they really shouldn't be on this list because they don't really quite meet the criteria. But they are so close and so cool that I just wanted to make sure they were on the list so that you can consider them and think about them in the future. Why would you say uh, it doesn't quite meet because in my first attempts to install, the first couple of installs, it didn't install cleanly. Uh, the, the install uh, for Windows uh, is just a little bit shaky still. And that's the reason for it. it it's really close, and, and there's a lot of benefit that it has over the other two, uh, being that it's much closer to an Outlook look and feel. Uh, so I, as I say, I, I put it up there because I think it is a wonderful candidate, but you know, give it another month, maybe one more release. Okay, uh, let's dig into a couple of these. Uh, Firefox, first the obvious one. We spend time on the web. Um, IE is already installed. Why would I want to put Firefox on there? Well, as of IE 7, they're pretty close feature-wise and security-wise once uh, IE caught on to the whole tab thing. Uh, but I've actually had both of them on my machine, and I just, I've found that there are certain applications that one of them runs better than the other. Mm -hmm. so I'll use Firefox for stuff, especially if I'm planning on doing downloads. But there's other applications where, there's, including there's a lot of websites that don't like to support Firefox. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the newer versions of, I, of uh, Firefox have actually incorporated that IE tab, as I understand. So it's a lot better at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. They've improved that. Uh, a few things that Firefox definitely does give you, though, is improved speed. Uh, there have been a lot of metrics done to demonstrate that, uh, particularly in your your JavaScript or Java rendering engine. Firefox is head and shoulders above uh, Internet Explorer 7, as well as the betas of Internet Explorer 8. It just beats it. Uh, the download manager, as you mentioned in Firefox, is cool. It's way better than, than the way IE handles it. It's, it's much easier. It's cleaner. It's well organized. It's concise. It gives you a lot more power. Just, it's cool. The other thing are the add-ons for Firefox, and I've listed three in particular. When we come back to that security uh, being about parity with them, well, until you add these add-ons, and then Firefox once again kicks Internet Explorer's butt, uh, in my opinion. Um, let's see here if I can uh, real quickly. I do just like to. Uh, show a little video here. Just to demonstrate this. Okay, so in Firefox, uh, we go to YouTube. And you can see here we've got this uh, 
error saying that now oh, you can't play videos because you've got JavaScript turned off or something's going on. Uh, the little clicky things aren't working on this page. Down here you can see uh, you can't really read it. Uh, it's telling you that uh, the scripts have been blocked on this page. And this is that uh, no script uh, plugin that we've added. Uh, it basically just prevents those scripts from running. Uh, just go over and click on options. You pop it up. You have the option then or the ability to allow either temporarily or permanently scripts from each of the sides where scripts are embedded on here. So it's got uh, someplace called YTImage and YouTube.com uh, where these scripts are coming from. You can also allow just everything for this page. So we go in and we allow the uh, YouTube ones. We find that really not much has changed. Things are working about the same. Uh, go back in. Well, we decide we can trust YTImage as well, so we go ahead and uh, allow scripts from it. Uh, now the little clicky things start to work. Uh, so you can actually open those. Things are behaving the way that we think they should. Uh, over here now we've got something new, and now we're going to that flash block plugin. Uh, you can see that it has indicated that there is a flash object here. Uh, you've got this little icon here. Uh, when you hover over it, it turns into a little play button, which you can click on and then play uh, that particular item. You can also right-click and allow for that site, which essentially whitelists YouTube at that point. And I'm just clicking on it to play, plays the video, just as we expect. Now up here, we see something else. There's this little block box that appeared. Uh, that's onto the ad block uh, plugin. Uh, it sees something that's flash here and says, oh, this might be an advertisement. I don't know if you want it blocked. You can click on that. It gets added to flash or uh, uh, ad blocks blacklist so that it will start playing that particular flash content. Now, if we go back to our page, you'll see it comes right back to being blocked again by flash block because we didn't tell it to allow it permanently. We didn't whitelist it. Uh, once we whitelist it, though, uh, you'll see it doesn't immediately play. Uh, but if we exit and then go back to that page, now that it's whitelisted, it will immediately play as we expect. So we have these varying layers of granular security that we can control how it behaves. And just taking a look inside of these add-ins now. Here's our, our uh, no script. Uh, you can see the whitelist there, which unfortunately you can barely read. I apologize for that. Uh, YouTube and white image are right there because we put them in. Uh, you can remove. There's some that are put in there by default. Uh, some that you may or may not really feel like you trust. Uh, and you can, of course, remove those or control those. If you don't really trust msn.com or hotmail.com, for instance, we can remove those. Uh, it's got a great deal of control uh, as far as how you set it up. Uh, it has support for Silverlight already, so they are keeping up to speed on newer scripting technologies. Um, a lot of ways you can change the way that it behaves as far as the look and feel as you get more interested in, in delving into it. For the most part, the whitelist is going to be sufficient for your uh, Windows addicts to, to use it. Uh, flash block now. Uh, same thing, there's a whitelist there. Not much to it since all it does is block flash. Again, once you have uh, sites in the whitelist, you can always remove them if you change your mind about trusting them. Uh, no big deal there. Uh, Adblock Plus. Now, this one is a little complicated for the average Windows addict. Uh, they're probably not going to want to dig into the guts here, because you're essentially building a, a filter. Uh, the nice thing is that there are subscriptions. So when it first runs, actually, it gives you an op opportunity to just click a checkbox, subscribe to this list. 
and some kind, smart person has built that filter for you, so you don't have to worry about it. And uh, so they'll probably just want to go in and use the update and possibly subscribe to other filters. Uh, from there, it's pretty easy to use. And that's uh, the basic features of those three plugins in play. Gives you a great deal of granular control over your security. Uh, good stuff. Okay, uh, next up, email, PIM. Uh, first obvious one, since we've been talking about Firefox, let's stay with the same company, Thunderbird. Now, Thunderbird is not an Outlook replacement. It's an Outlook Express replacement. Works wonderfully for that. A lot better, in fact. Um, but if this person is using Outlook and taking advantage of tasks, uh, calendaring, they're probably not going to be happy with Thunderbird. Uh, now, from the aspect of just email, if that's all they're doing, this is a great replacement. And the nice thing about it is that it does do a very nice import of your information uh, from Outlook and Outlook Express. Uh, after you completely install it on first run, it notices if you have Outlook or Outlook Express installed. It says, hey, do you want to import your settings, your folders, your email? It does it wonderfully. Um, one thing that's a little bit different about it is junk mail. Uh, Outlook basically uses a really cool algorithm that they've come up with to try to identify what is junk mail, and it dumps everything in there. Now, if stuff goes in there that isn't supposed to be, you can go and say, hey, this wasn't junk. Well, they whitelist the address that they came, that came from, and so now anything coming from that address is legitimate. And it works all right. Um, Thunderbolt actually uses uh, a Bayesian algorithm. Uh, now, when it first runs, it's not going to be real good at catching junk. Uh, but you go in and you start marking things. This is junk. This isn't junk. This is junk. This isn't. It then learns what is junk to you and what is not junk to you. And it very quickly figures out and does an incredibly good job of identifying what you want and what you don't want. It is excellent. Um, I put a note on here about data location. Uh, it's really not fair to do this because Outlook does the same stupid thing, in my opinion. Um, they put your Outlook data in a hidden folder under your profile, which makes it kind of annoying to find. Um, the, uh, the way that you find it is uh, just go to Start Run and put percent app data percent. And then you can jump right into the folder where both of them are located. You'll see the Thunderbird folder there. Just go into it and find the profile. Now, one thing that's kind of cool about uh, Thunderbird, I, I think this is cool anyway, is rather than just using one single file, the PST that Outlook uses and dumps everything in there, it actually treats each folder in your uh, structure as a separate file. Uh, so if you, for example, have a particular folder that you need to share or transfer to a friend, you can just copy the file out. There's actually two files. One, I think, is an index, and the other actually stores the data. Uh, you just copy those files out, give them to your friend. He dumps them into his folder, and there it is. I think that's pretty cool. Um, evolution, again, as I said, it's a little rough still. It's, it's, it's not as stable and as easy to install as, as I think it should be. Uh, great potential, though. Um, yet it is a full Outlook replacement. It has the, the same set of features uh, that uh, Outlook has. 
Um, I do have a screenshot here just to uh, show you what it looks like so you can see. Um, looks a great deal like Outlook. Uh, the other one, Chandler. Um, this is kind of the newer kit on the block. Uh, again, very, very nice interface. Um, high focus on collaboration. Uh, when you get into Chandler, they're going to immediately start advertising to you, hey, you can get uh, uh, an account on our site where you can build uh, teams and, and share and collaborate this information. So uh, if that's something that's appealing to you, that's uh, actually probably one of those embrace and extend things where they've extended beyond what uh, Microsoft offers. Um, let's see. Uh, the, the one beef, of course, that uh, I would bring up is that none of these appear to easily do PDA syncing. Um, that may not matter to most people because most people probably don't carry a PDA around. But if they do, that may be a showstopper for them. And with PDA synchronization, it's easy enough that you've got just, uh, you have any, they, they tend to do fairly well with the online email servers and stuff. Like I've got both Gmail and Docker that I can pull to my PDA. Mm -hmm. And I can get my PDA to work. <laughs> So just be aware of that. If, if they're pulling their tasks and stuff out of uh, Outlook, this may not be a good fit, at least not yet. I know that uh, they're talking about it, so we'll see what happens. Um, now, of course, if you get converted to Linux and using Evolution, then Palm Pilots work, and I think there's even solutions for the Windows uh, PDAs as well. So, Okay, then on to Office. Uh, open Office. How many here have seen Open Office? Great, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it just to, to move us along. The, the three core apps, your, your Word, Excel, PowerPoint, very compatible. Uh, up through uh, Office 2000 slash 2003, they read and write the files. Uh, Word, exceptional compatibility, both uh, reading and saving. Excel, uh, pretty darn good. Some of the more advanced features you may have trouble with. Uh, PowerPoint, similar, does a pretty darn good job. Occasionally a few of the things don't render quite the way you expect, but, but pretty darn good. Uh, 2000, they can read 2007 documents. They can't save to the 2007 format, not yet. Um, the included access equivalent isn't an access equivalent. If they're a heavy access user, they're probably not going to be happy with it. Uh, just not quite as easy. Uh, to build databases if you don't know anything about databases as Access is. So, of course, that could be a good thing. The less people that don't know about databases building databases, the better off we'd probably be. But, um, Composer. Composer is a uh, web editing tool. Uh, probably more similar to, uh, I'm going to forget what it's called. Um, some people that make fireworks. I'm drawing a blank on the name. I apologize. Um, not quite as, as front pagey as uh, more similar to the other application whose name I forget. Dreamweaver. That's the one. Thank you. Um, now, it doesn't come with an installer. It's just a zip file. So extract it on your computer and run it. 
that's in my mind just as easy, so we'll accept that. Um, Absolutely, yes. Eclipse is, as was shown there, it's a, it's a development platform, and it can be used for, uh, for uh, web page development as well. Uh, you can actually do a lot more advanced stuff in it. Uh, but, yeah, as he says, you need to be a little more daring. It, it expects a little bit more of you. Uh, but for very simple web page editing, uh, it, does, it does handle uh, CSS. Um, nice little program. Uh, other, um, PDF Creator. Now, OpenOffice can actually save to PDF, uh, so PDF Creator isn't too interesting to you from that standpoint, but if you have other applications that you want to create PDFs out of, uh, PDF Creator is wonderful. Uh, it installs on your computer and actually creates a PDF printer on your computer. So then from any application, you can just do your file print and select the PDF Creator Printer, and it pops up a dialog saying, well, what do you want to call this PDF, and what do you want to use for your author and title information or whatever, and you do your stuff, and it saves it out, and you've got a PDF. Um, on with PDFs, then, uh, Sumatra is a really cool uh, Acrobat PDF file reader. I think it's like 200K in size or less. One single file. Um, doesn't do a lot of the high-end, rendery, cool stuff that Acrobat does. Uh, but that, too, can be a plus because it is much less of a security threat. Uh, you don't have to worry about somebody putting malicious code inside of, a, of an Acrobat file and attacking you via it because it simply won't run it. Uh, the other cool thing that I really like about Sumatra is if you read PDF books, your e-books, uh, if you're reading a book, you close it. Next time you open it, Sumatra actually remembers where you were and opens it to that location again. Very nice feature. Really teeny. You can throw it on a thumb drive and pack it with you. Uh, Dia, that's your uh, Visio replacement. How many people here use Visio? What's that? Okay. Yeah. Most of the things that you do in Visio, Dial will do just fine. It doesn't have quite as rich a set of templates. Uh, well, actually, I think the Dial actually has more Cisco templates than Visio does the last time I looked at it. Um, and Dial will do a lot of other things that, uh, if you're into to software development, that uh, Visio doesn't do well uh, as far as object-oriented design. Um, uh, project, MS Project. This one I struggled with a little bit trying to find some options. Uh, Open Workbench is one. I, I haven't actually looked at it because you have to register with their website to download it, and I didn't feel like doing that. Um, but screenshots, it, it looks pretty decent. Uh, Open Project is one that I did download and take a look at. Uh, again, neither of these is as rich as Microsoft Project at this point as far as features, but for the vast majority of people, more than enough to do some basic project management. And that's sort of a less common application that people use, but I mentioned it anyway. Um,
graphics and sound. Uh, for pictures, you've got the GIMP. Uh, the GIMP is a uh, Photoshop equivalent, uh, pretty close in, in uh, quality and capabilities, I think. I, I guess I, I can't say that I know that because I haven't used Photoshop for uh, eons because I haven't been able to afford it since the one time it came free with a scanner 10 years ago. Uh, GIMP works just fine for me, does everything and actually more than I can hope to understand about uh, photo manipulation. Um, I've added Inkscape in here too. Inkscape may not be as appealing to most people, but I mention it because it does appeal to people that are really into graphics. Uh, it specifically focuses on vector graphics uh, as opposed to your photo or bitmap type graphics. Um, people that use it love it, so I mention it. I installed it and looked at the interface and said, wow, that's cool. That's a lot of stuff that I don't understand. And so, but. Uh, yeah. There's also uh, GIMP Shop, which uh, I don't know if you want to touch on that, but it, it starts to more closely emulate Photoshop Shop UI. So if you're familiar with Photoshop, it's an easier technique. Correct. Yeah, I should mention that. that uh, GIMP Shop is, uh, I guess you would call it a fork project of GIMP. They, they took the uh, GIMP core and they tried to make it more Photoshoppy for the Photoshop people. Uh, music, uh, I put a couple in here that, that I use heavily. Uh, one is CDEX, a very simple program for just ripping your CDs uh, to MP3 uh, or WAV files. Um, it connects to Internet CD database, so when you stick your CD in, it can pull the track information for you. So it's real easy, not a lot of work. You stick your CD in and push a button, and, and it just does its thing. You don't have to work on it. The other one that I really love is Audacity. Um, now, Audacity is an editing tool for sound. Uh, it basically gives you uh, a visual view, a, a timeline view of uh, your audio file, and you can play it. It takes a tracker that follows through. You can mark set points in it, begin point, end points. It has filters to allow you to do things like reverse things. So if you want to hear what Pink Floyd sounds like backwards, you can go and flip it around and, and listen to it for yourself. Um, I've used it a lot personally. It has a built-in filter for removing noise. Uh, so I've used it to take some old uh, cassette recordings I have of scratchy records and play those and uh, remove noise with it. And it does a pretty good job of cleaning it up. Uh, I love it. I think it's a great program. Uh, multimedia. M-Player, uh, of course, is one of the options. Um, I don't know as much about it because I don't use it uh, myself. I did install it here. There's a, there's a, uh, some nice gentleman has put together a package called MPUI uh, that bundles M-Player, which M-Player itself is not a graphical program. Uh, but it has a couple of wonderful front ends, and he's included both of those in there. One is called SM Player, uh, the other is called MPUI. Uh, they give you nice, clean uh, user interfaces. Uh, you can kind of take your pick, choose whichever one you like the best. Um, the one that I use a lot is uh, VLC. Now, VLC is, is kind of ugly to look at. 
Uh, it is skinnable, so you can go in and make it look pretty much however you want. That takes a little bit of knowledge to do. Uh, the thing that is cool about VLC is it plays everything. Um, okay. It plays corrupted video files frequently. I've, I've had files that I could not get to play in anything else. VLC, yeah, no problem. Just close right through it. No big deal. Uh, awesome program. It'll, it'll play your DVDs. Uh, it plays DivX. Uh, plays every audio uh, format and video format you can imagine. Just incredible. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, if, if, for example, you're using Windows Media Player and you hit a DivX file, well, it immediately starts trying to find a codec for it, which it may or may not be able to find. VLAN doesn't need any codecs. It just plays it. Good luck, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of my favorites. I use it because I like to rip my DVDs to my hard drive and then watch my DVD movies just directly off my hard drive because uh, it saves you a lot of battery life. You're not running your DVD drive, so you get a lot more battery life out of your computer that way. That's a personal thing. I'm probably not supposed to say that because that's probably illegal. But. Um, I put super on here and then after the fact realized that I should have graded out or probably not included it at all. Um, I'll mention it because you may find it useful. Super is a tool that you can use to convert uh, videos from one format to another. Uh, Super uses open source software. Super itself is a closed proprietary front end. Uh, you can't even distribute it according to their rules. So I can't give you a copy of it. And it's a real pain in the butt to get it off of their website because they give you two bazillion pages about how super, super is. And somewhere in there you'll find a link that you think is the download, but that just takes you to another page of how super, super is. And so, yeah, it should be grayed out. Sorry. Uh, AVI DMUX. Um, I'm guessing that this is probably a really cool program on Linux. It's really close to cool on Windows, at least my experience with it. Uh, it uh, is for video what Audacity is for audio. Uh, just gives you your video on a nice clean timeline. You can drag along. You can pick your, pick your start point to end point uh, to copy, paste, cut bits and pieces out. The only problem I had with it is that uh, while it was really easy to edit my video, uh, I couldn't just easily save my video and then have something that I could watch afterward. I'd save the video out and it would just play garbage for sound and freeze on one frame. Um, I imagine that if somebody was more determined, they could probably take the time and, and figure out how to make it work. But that, of course, doesn't meet my requirements that it works without having to dig or pry. Um, now, that being said, VLC will play the file without a problem, even though nobody else will. So if, if you want to use it and plan on only ever using VLC, you're set. And I throw Media Center up here as a category because it's really sort of an up-and-coming thing that people are starting to do with their computers. Um, 
none of the candidates are quite where I think they should be to be on the list, but there are some really, really cool ones. Uh, you know, first of all, I'll sort of ignore Miro. It really shouldn't be here. It was classified as Media Center. It, it really probably belongs in Media Player more. Uh, it's a unique media player in that it caters to online uh, web uh, media. Uh, does a really good job of pulling web TV kind of stuff down. So it, it's pretty cool, but I, it really, I don't think it should really be with, in the same class as these others. Um, media Portal is incredibly cool. Um, well, let me start with Elisa, just because I think that Media Portal is is uh, probably the, the next jump up after that. Um, Elisa has a nice, clean, crisp interface. Uh, I didn't have any problems getting it installed on my computer. It, it really qualifies in virtually every sense, other than I found that there were a lot of video formats that it wouldn't play. Um, uh, so if, if you're using it for uh, video or picture slideshows and for uh, music, uh, it's probably uh, plenty sufficient. Um, Media Portal, uh, everything about it was there. The install was easy. Uh, played pretty much any format that I threw at it. Uh, the nice thing about it is that it's easy to extend. You can actually, without much knowledge, get into it and tell it, well, I would like to use VLC to be my video player, please, and it will happily do that. And it doesn't take a lot of work to do that. Uh, crisp interface, uh, skinnable interface, uh, ties into TV. You can get your, uh, your uh, if you have a capture card, you can take advantage of TV uh, to do your uh, recording, um, to uh, get you your uh, uh, TV guide. Uh, you can set it to uh, give weather information, so you can have that as your uh, online screen when you're not using it. Uh, a lot of different skins to choose from uh, to change the way it looks. Um, the only problem I had, and this may be because of particular video cards, so it, it may work well for you. I, I'd give it a try. Is that the videos when I would play them would tend to uh, break apart, delineate, desaturate, split into multiple tiles. Um, that could just be a video card issue. So it. It may really be there. Another cool feature about it is that it can add FTP directories as part of its repository. So you can you can set up, a, if you've got a, a NAS on your network, you can actually say, well, I want to use this NAS, just FTP to here, and find my files there. So that's really cool. Um, I mentioned Linux MCE2, although it doesn't really qualify uh, because it doesn't run on Windows, first of all, and it's not easy to set up, secondly. Um, but from a Windows Addict standpoint, if they want to spend a little money, uh, there's a company called Fire that makes an entire range of products based on Linux MCE uh, that will control your house, uh, control your security system, turn your lights on and off, cook your toast for you, uh, as well as do all of the media kind of stuff that you expect a media center to do. Um, so I mentioned it just in case they have more money than time and, and want to dig into it. And it's, it's pretty reasonably priced, really, when, when you look at uh, Windows Media Center and what it does compared to what the Linux MCE will do for you. The really, uh, price is pretty reasonable. Hope I don't get in trouble for advertising. Um, the Etc. OS, just to bring up a few more. Uh, 
finance, that's a big one for a lot of people, quick and money. Uh, GNU Cash, Turbo Cash, Grisby. Uh, the first two are actually more QuickBooks than Quicken. Um, GNU Cash, however, does a wonderful job of importing from Quicken. And the first time you run it, it will run a tutorial to help you learn how to use it. So it's really not that bad to get into. It's not going to be like Quicken, but they do a pretty good job of holding your hand. Uh, Grisby's a lot closer to Quicken. Uh, it doesn't look the same, just works at the same level. Uh, comes from Europe, so it comes up in Euro by default. Watch out for that. Uh, I am Pigeon. Everybody that uses, uses I am ought to be doing Pigeon because it does everything uh, all from one system. You, you can access your AIM, your Google Talk, uh, your ICQ, IRQ, whatever you want. It's right there. Uh, security. Now, this is an area where the Windows folks are at a disadvantage because they don't have these things. Uh, but it's definitely worth introducing them to. Uh, how many people have more than 20 passwords they have to keep track of? Usernames and passwords accounts. More than 30. More than 40. More than 50. More than 100. Okay. Can you imagine if every single one of those people followed the Microsoft best practice of requiring you to change that password every 90 days? That means you have to come up with a new password every three days. And then try to remember it? Forget it. KeyPass is a wonderful little password store. It allows you to organize your passwords however you want. It's sort of an explorer-like interface. Uh, store your username, your password, uh, URLs. You can put your credit card pins, whatever you want, into it. Great program. You ought to introduce your Windows friends to it. They'll love you for it. Uh, GPG for a win. Uh, cryptography, again, is something that the Windows people aren't really familiar with. Um, GPG for win makes it pretty easy for them to encrypt and decrypt files to send via email. Uh, the package GPG for Win, if you download it, includes a mail client called Claws, which they may or may not like. Uh, if they do like it, it's nice because the encryption is all transparent then. Um, TrueCrypt allows you to actually uh, encrypt an entire hard drive or create a file on your hard drive that looks like it itself is a drive. Uh, again, really easy to use, transparent, wonderful program. Uh, eraser, uh, sorry, going fast here because I think I'm running out of time. Um, eraser allows you to shred files rather than just deleting it. It actually uh, goes through and wipes the uh, bits where the file was uh, using some sort of DOD wipe to completely eliminate it. Uh, it does. It, it does the DOD. It will do, I think it does a 23 pass. It's capable of doing. You have a, you can select which one it uses, but I believe it does a Gutman. Yeah. It will do up to the... Yeah. So, yeah, your friends ought to know about it. Another one I would recommend introducing them to if they ever need to sell their computer is DBAN. Now, DBAN is not Windows. It's Linux. Uh, but it's included on the list because it is really easy to use. You burn on a CD, you stick it in your computer, you boot up the computer, uh, you go through a very simple, clean interface to wipe your hard drive. It will do a DOD wipe, it will do the, the uh, Gutman wipe, 
uh, and shred your entire drive. Now, not a good thing to tell them about as a prank, because it will wipe their drive out, but your friends ought to know about it if they ever need to sell a computer. Make sure they have this so they can wipe the drive before they pass it on to somebody who might go looking for old credit card numbers or social security numbers. Uh, a couple more, uh, 7-zip, every computer just ought to have it installed, I think. Uh, Windows obviously has the built-in functionality for zip. 7-zip does basically the same thing, other than it gives you a little bit more flexibility and power. And 7-zip does it for more than just zip files. It'll do it for your RAR, LZH, and uh, other compression schemes. Um, Another one that I find kind of cool uh, that uh, is a great way to just sort of get your uh, Windows addict hooked is Winderstat. Uh, it just gives them an easy way to see how the space on their drive is being used. Uh, you can see uh, which folders are taking up the most space, uh, what kind of files are taking up the most space. Uh, it gives you a, a sort of a graphical representation there to, to try to give you a, a more cleaner idea of, oh gosh, man, my, Whole systems taken up by applications. Where are applications? Um, so it's it's a nice little program. Um, FreeMinds. I actually used FreeMinds to uh, do a lot of my research on this program. Uh, it's the first time I ever used note-taking software. I loved it. Uh, it's really easy to use. Uh, you can do the whole thing from the keyboard uh, very crisply. Uh, without feeling like you're having to think about it. Um, it just, uh, you can just navigate up and down inside of, inside of the trees, uh, enter to add another line. Uh, very slick, easy program to use to allow you to uh, do brainstorming, uh, thought mapping kind of, uh, kind of things. A um, couple more real fast. Uh, if they've got kids, you ought to introduce them to TuxPaint. Uh, TuxPaint is so much cooler than Microsoft Paint. Um, TuxPaint has music. Uh, TuxPaint has all kinds of cool brushes uh, for doing all kinds of fun things with. TuxPaint has stamps. Let's see you do that with Microsoft Paint. <laughs> Your kids will have a blast with Tux Paint. Okay. Uh, a couple others. Portable apps. Um, portable apps. I've actually installed it on my hard drive. It's made to be installed on a thumb drive. With this installed on your thumb drive, you have OpenOffice, Pigeon, Sumatra, KeyPass in your pocket. You're over at your friend's house, you need to work on an OpenOffice document, and he's a jerk and won't let you install OpenOffice, no problem. Pop in portable apps, and away you go. It's essentially a way to carry your computer with you. Uh, other interesting things to mention. Um, it wouldn't be fair 
to do an open source presentation without talking at least a little bit about Linux. There are ways for an addict to appreciate Linux. Uh, first of all, you've got live CDs, Nopix, Ubuntu. They make it really easy to boot off of a CD and play around a little bit and see what it does. Uh, the other possibility, similar to open apps, there are portable versions of Linux. Uh, QEMU, Puppy, and DSL are two variants that you can find. Uh, it runs off a thumb drive, you stick it in, you double click on an icon, a window pops up, and it boots up Linux inside of a virtual machine. Um, PDL is another one. Uh, it's found at pendrivelinux.com. Makes it pretty easy to find. Uh, good way to play around with Linux without having to mess up your Windows computer if you're worried about that. I'll just go ahead and leave this slide up. This is a, a, a list of sites that I used for some of my research for this presentation, actually. The, the first four sites are a great place to look for particular applications. I need an application that's kind of like this. Uh, they bring various categories, either identifying by, well, here's a Windows program, here's some open source equivalents, or, well, here's a category of application, here's some open source programs that might meet that category. Uh, pretty well listed. Some of them have good reviews to help you select the one that fits you best. Uh, Pendrive Linux, I mentioned, a uh, good place to find information about running Linux off of a USB stick. Um, this one I threw on here just because I really think that media portal is cool, and this gives a nice how-to that uh, might help to overcome some of the issues that I ran into with just doing a blind install. Um, we're taking a look at, and then of course I added fire.com there just because, you know, I do a shameless plug for a company I know nothing about uh, that has a really cool product. Um, now, uh, I severely underestimated the number of people who would be interested in this class. I did burn some CDs. I've got about a half a dozen uh, that include the applications that um, I did um, for this uh, presentation. Uh, there's some on here that I didn't do in the presentation. There's a couple of games, a few things. Uh, there's a few things that I had to leave off because I ran out of space. Um, I've got about a half dozen disks here and about another half dozen blank disks that if somebody wants to help make some copies, we can, or if somebody wants to just grab the CD and copy it to their laptop or whatever, but you're welcome to grab a copy if you're interested. Um, and questions? Okay. And other than that, uh, best of luck in overcoming your addiction. And thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.